Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Jonathan Stark. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. This uh, is going to be an interesting topic. We're going to chat a little bit about Jonathan's entrepreneurial journey first, and then we're going to dive into something that he is passionate about, which is that he believes service providers should abandon hourly billing in favor of what he calls value pricing. And I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a little skeptical going into this conversation. And so that's why I'm looking forward to having Jonathan set me straight. And uh, if you want to receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, then just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. Jonathan Stark is a former software developer who is now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts. That's his book. And he's also have his own, he has his own podcast. He's the host of Ditching Hourly. I've listened to it. It's a great, great podcast. And he writes a, a daily newsletter as well on pricing for independent professionals. Jonathan lives in the Providence, Rhode Island area. So once again, once again, Jonathan Stark, welcome to the show. <laughs> Glad to be here. Absolutely. All right. So just to start at the beginning a little bit, you studied music in school, if I got it right. So what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, well, I was born in 1968. So in the 80s, I was the perfect age to uh, just be completely overwhelmed by MTV. <laughs> which most people probably don't remember. So I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be on MTV. I wanted to be on the radio. And uh, I had some friends that were amazing musicians. So I picked up the guitar around age 14 or 15 and uh, just rode that wave for probably 15 years, I guess. Wonderful. Yeah, so that that was the thing. Yeah, I wanted to. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad it didn't work out for me because I would have absolutely hated being famous. <laughs> That's interesting. So, so when did you give up on being a rock star? Mm. Well, maybe you haven't given up on it. No, I definitely have. I, I, and it's funny because looking back on it, I know why I should have. I'm glad I did. And when I look back on it, I know why I should have. And the reason why I should have was because I didn't care about the audience. Isn't that weird? Interesting. You just yeah. enjoyed performing and creating music? I wanted to be cool. I ah, wanted my musician friends to think I was cool. It was all about me. And uh, that's, I mean, who knows, you know, like what would have happened if I had a different attitude. But when I look at, at musicians who are popular and have great careers, they care about the audience. <laughs> I did not care about the audience. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but I was really just oh, thinking about myself. And sure. uh, when I when I look back on it, I see the contrast to what I'm doing now. And mm -hmm. and if I was going to give advice to myself as a as a you know a teenager or early twenties, I'd be like, dude, why are you even doing this? Like, yeah, you know, there's a I was, you know, I knew how to do computers back then. Why not do that? Like I wasn't trying, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh no, I do. I mean, especially now because now you care so much. I know because I'm doing the research, you care so much about your clients, your customers, your listeners. And so I think that's why it highlights so much how you didn't care about them late back then, who your audience was back then. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but so I'll phrase this carefully, but nonetheless, your parents, or maybe you paid your own way through college, allowed you to indulge in a, in a music degree. <laughs> So right. tell me yeah, about I that. I went to Berkeley and uh, oh. my 
my parents did not tell me they were going to pay for it. So I had to pony up, they paid for some of it. And then I had to pony up a bunch of money. But then when I graduated, they actually paid my loans off, which was very, very nice. Very and, nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially considering that, you know, the, I mean, the diplomas, the experience was very interesting. And I think I apply it in lots of ways now because there's a lot of entrepreneurial things that you learn you know, I don't know if it's the same now, it probably is. But back then, there was it was very much like running your own business. If you were mm. trying to get people to come out to your shows and buy your CD or your tape, right? You know, this is back to the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it was very much like running a business. So mm -hmm. a lot of the a lot of the, virtually everything I did back then was the wrong thing to do. But I did, <laughs> I did recognize later that oh that's why that's why that didn't work which was extremely instructive versus you know let's say i had never had that experience and didn't know had nothing to compare it to i wouldn't maybe respect the right approach as much as i would having done it the wrong way for so long sure yeah no that makes a lot of sense the other thing i'm always curious about with people who who did study something creatively is what do you think you take away from the way you think about music, the way you learn music to how you do business besides the marketing components you just mentioned. Are there other things you see that, that it has helped you with from the creative side? Yeah. I, I mean, the performing arts, performing arts in general is very, I, I feel like it's a very helpful thing for people who want to go into business because I think without exception, I'm like scanning through like, you know, my cousin's a dancer and I also do martial arts, which is a performing art and, mm -hmm. and music and performing art, not me and recording artists is not some, I'm talking about like going up on stage and in the moment in front of people executing is a, an amazing skill to have. Mm. So I definitely take that away from it. I mean, having yeah. gone up in front of a mic with an acoustic guitar and my own solo songs, I mean, nothing scares you. Like yeah. after you do that, nothing scares you. Maybe, so many maybe stand up yeah. comedy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so many lessons that you take from that, that apply to everything else you do in life. Right. Right. And the, the ability to get up in front of that mic with a bunch of eyeballs staring at you and understand that they want you to be great and to be able to execute in the moment without second guessing yourself or like, or like, feeling your physiological reaction, which could be interpreted as nervousness and instead interpreting it as excitement and using it, I think is a, it's an invaluable lesson to learn. And when you, you know, fast forward into, you know, 20 years later, when you actually know what you're talking about and you're teaching business, business things that you know work, it's like a joke compared mm -hmm. to, you know, stand-up comedy or, dance or, or, you know, performing your own original songs at an open mic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, and I think part of it, when you tell me what you think is because when you are sharing that artistic expression in front of an audience, it's very personal. It's a part of you. And so the rejection of it can potentially, you know, cut deep. But once yeah. you get past that, the fact that you don't point. like my business idea is like, eh, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it is you learn early that uh, you you figure out how to differentiate between the rejection of your idea and the re rejection of you as a person. Yeah. If you don't figure that out, you're not going to last for five minutes. So well said. Well yeah. said. All right. So what leads then to Jonathan start consulting? Did you already have 
value pricing as your model? Just lead me up to what, what started. How did that start? Yeah, so it's a it's a big leap forward time-wise. I when I left music, uh, I returned to computing, which I had been doing in junior high and even earlier. Um, and I, you know, before I even picked up a guitar, and so I went back to that because I had a mortgage and I wanted to pay the bills. And it was tough with music; it was really easy with computers. Um, I was a natural with computers, so I went into that and I started doing um, freelance work. I got hired through the freelancing. I got hired full time at a, you know, Fortune 50 retailer in their advertising department. I ended up building uh, database solutions there using a, a platform called FileMaker, which is still around. And after a couple of years, I got dissatisfied with that, and I went and worked for a consultancy that did FileMaker. And at that firm, we did, we, you know, we build by the hour. It's pretty much normal. It's still pretty normal to build by the hour for software development. So that's what we did. And over a couple of years, I worked my way up from like junior developer to vice president. And I was managing a bunch of developers and I was meeting with potential clients and trying to put together estimates. And I was putting together invoices and having developers track their hours like every week. Hey, everybody get your hours in. And it was hours, 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 hours. And I, I, I just, something was wrong. I could tell something was wrong. Uh, the firm, you know, we had challenges just like everybody. And I was like, there's something wrong with this hours thing. I can't reliably satisfy my clients because the estimates keep going over. So we, for, for years, I was like, how do we do better estimates? Do we, mm -hmm. you know, I tried everything you could think of. And eventually I was like, wait a second, our best developer is super fast. He gets things done perfectly the first time. He doesn't have to do it over again. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any management. And we're losing money on him hmm. because he's so good that we pay him a lot in salary and he finishes everything too fast. And I was like, wait a second. So our junior, I thought, well, what about a junior developer? Junior developer took a long time to do stuff. He needed lots of help. He had to be, uh, he had to do a lot of things over again, two and three times, but he kept his clients super happy. Hmm. So we're making way more money off of the junior developer because <laughs> his salary was half of what, and I was like, this doesn't make sense. I was like, you know, I have kind of like a mathematical mind. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. We should be like, we should be making more money off of the better developer. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seems like, seems obvious. And it took me weeks of thinking about this to finally, finally recognize that hourly billing was the source of this problem. And if we switched to fixed pricing, specifically value pricing for projects, it would change everything. Were you able to test it there or that was just not something you could get them to think about? Yeah, I brought it up with my boss and you know, he was, he was like my direct report. I said, hey, I think we need to switch over to this thing and here's all the problems that I believe it would solve. But it was still new to me and in fairness to him, he was like, I don't see, I get what you're saying, but I don't see how we would do it. Mm -hmm. And in all honesty, I probably would have screwed it up if he had let me try. Okay, because you hadn't really, you hadn't fleshed it out yet as to the execution of it, the transitioning, all those things you hadn't figured out yet. Right. I just had it in theory. I, I immediately saw the theory of it made sense, but I, but in terms of implementing it, I was like, I would have been making it up as I went along. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I couldn't un unsee that. I was like, I gotta, I'm going to try it. So like, he was like, I don't know how we would do it. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> I don't either. 
and it seemed too risky. So I said, I'm just going to go solo and start doing it from scratch. And since I didn't have any of the baggage of like, you know, an invoicing system that was built around hours right. and a project management system that was yeah. built around hours and a proposal process that was built around hours. I had no baggage. Right. No so time just, tracking, no way to measure people that way. It was just you. Just me. So I, you know, so from the get go and like instantaneously, it was like way better. Instantaneously. The very first year I made double my salary before, which isn't apples to apples comparison, but it is pretty interesting. Uh, but the main thing that is apples to apples is that I the quality of life was dramatically different. Like as soon as, as soon as a client knows how much something really, the final price upfront, it changes everything about the relationship. And when you're doing project work that is non-trivial, so say three, six, nine, 18 months, you know, like, like projects, collaborative yeah. projects with clients. And all of a sudden you take that ticking clock out of the equation. It changes everything for the better for both of you. Hmm. Okay, we're going to talk more about that. As you were developing this, did you did you talk to somebody who had been doing it? Uh, how was what was any kind of research that you did, or was were you on your own with this? Oh no, no, I, I I had been doing research when I was trying to figure out what the problem was with hourly, and I came across Alan Weiss, who has what was my bible for years. Uh, it's a book called Value Based Fees. Absolutely recommend it. It's it's, you know, it was written in the eighties. It's totally out of date, but there's still a lot of really good points in it. Um, and that, that was my main, uh, my main starting point for like, okay, this is how you do it. This, mm -hmm. These are the, the guardrails. Uh, but I also, um, was it back then, who else did I read? Michael Port, um, book yourself solid, really good book. Uh, another one was, um, I don't remember which title it was, but uh, Ron Baker has some really good books on value pricing. There are other ones, Pound, Poundstone's book. Um, more recently, Blair Ends has a bunch of really good stuff on this. You know, so I, you know, I read some books back then and not necessarily the same ones I'd recommend now, but I did have a roadmap yeah, at the yeah. time. Okay, before we dive into it though, did you know from early days that you wanted to be your own boss or do you think that came later? I mean, certainly wanted to be a rock star like you articulated as partly being your own boss, but in the true sense of starting a business, when did that come to you? I never, yeah, that's a good question. I never thought about it as starting a business per se. Like I never thought to myself, I'm an entrepreneur, but I have always had like an overdeveloped sense of confidence and, and a, a, annoyingly questioning personality mm -hmm. which doesn't so, make for a good employee often. does not make for a good employee i'm not a good employee and i recognize that and i and and in fact along the way i had some good managers who were like you're not a good employee <laughs> and we you know but not in a in an accusatory way but more like you know and i see it in other people now i see it in people who are like chafing at their job and they're telling me like, oh, my boss doesn't understand how valuable this is. I'm like, you're not a good employee. You should just go start your own business. Like now, your manager is not going to see Because I know you've, it sounds like you've given it some thought. How do you differentiate people? I always get frustrated with people who complain, but it's just because that's all they know how to do mm. and how to differentiate that between, you know what, you, you really need to go work for yourself. You understand the difference I'm trying to. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look and, for? Uh, I don't know if I have a general rule for that. It's the kind of, it's the kind of conversation I would only have with someone I cared about, you know, like that I knew personally. So, and, and it would be a case by case thing. I, I wish I could give you a general rule for that. Cause I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
what would I say for a list to the listener? The listener, if you find yourself complaining on a regular basis, you should really ask yourself if you're just blown off steam or you're truly dissatisfied. If you yeah. are just blowing off steam, that's a, a habit you might want to take a look at. Yeah. Okay. Good, good way to put it. Um, now, and this might seem like a simple or silly question. What, what do you get out of being your own boss now? I mean, autonomy, do whatever I want, whenever I want. There's like no greater, maybe no, that's an overstatement maybe, but there's like very little that I personally value more than being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't have appointments and then I have to show up on time. Of course I do, but, mm -hmm. but being able to decide what I'm going to do next week with almost complete impunity is true wealth. And if you, you know, I don't care how much money in the you have in the bank. If somebody's telling what you what to do all day, that's not autonomy. Agreed. And, and maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a control freak or whatever. But um, and it's a total first world thing. But that to me, that's the end game. The end game is be able to to not set an alarm, wake up when you wake up, and do what you want to do. And at the end of the day, go to sleep when you feel like going to sleep. Agreed. That's, that's it for me as well. That was it for me early on was control. Um, all right, let's dive into it. Value pricing. I thought maybe we would start by telling me why some of the reasons why uh, hourly billing, and we'll clarify, you know, kind of where you believe this applies most, but why hourly billing or day rates? Why is that such a bad thing? I mean, the, the bottom line is, if you are selling your time, you're putting an artificial limit on your income. That's the bottom line. Like if, if someone's listening to this and they're like perfectly happy renting themselves out by the hour or by the day, then fine, keep doing it. But I pretty much can guarantee you're going to get sick of it in a few years. So if you're not there yet and you're still like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting paid like $150 an hour to do this thing I love to do. Great. You're happy. Keep doing it. Mm -hmm. But remember this interview in three years when you're like, hmm, I haven't made any more money in the last couple of years. The idea of taking a vacation is comical because every hour I'm at Disneyland feels like $150 I lost. Mm -hmm. It's you cannot scale your business faster than your, you know, I, I want to say cost of living, but what I mean, really, that's not what I mean. You can't scale your business fast enough to get ahead of where you want your lifestyle to go. So it's beyond just cost of living. It's like, I want to grow. I want to work less and make more and have a bigger impact. It's almost certain that you will not be able to do that if you're trading time for money. Because everybody, not only are there just a limited number of hours you can work per year, but it forces the client to think about the wrong thing. That's the real problem. And, and, uh, and so I get that part of it. I, I really do. And, and is that, which is that it's the, it's entrepreneurship 101. You, you only have so many hours, so you can't leverage, right? Uh, there's only right. so there's many no hours leverage. you can deliver, right? Yeah. Yeah. And people will say, oh, you can raise your rates, but I defy you to raise your rates fast enough or high enough to keep pace with the right. lifestyle you want to have. It's you were talking about that in one of your episodes about that, that, you know, some people say, oh, it's just a cost of living raise, but you know, it's, first of all, you get pushback and it's just, once that rate is established in your client's mind, it's very hard to then change it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. In theory, you could do it. In practice, it's like a fraction of a percentage percentage of people that I've ever even heard of, and I don't even know them, but I've heard reports that like the partner at a 
at a New York law firm makes $2,000 an hour. And I'm like, okay, fine. If you can make $2,000 an hour, you know, client calls you, says, what's your hourly rate? And you say $2,000 an hour and they don't <laughs> hang up on you immediately. Right. Then great. Keep right. going by the hour. Good for you. Yeah. Right. But, but that's you, a really small portion of the of the service-based population. Right? It's basically zero. Yeah. And and I promise you that the people who are willing to pay $2,000 an hour don't care about your hourly rate. No. They're thinking about something completely different. They're thinking about the result that you can give them, right? Right. And they're just assuming that it'll be fewer than 100 hours. So, like, that's... It's just not, it's, I just wouldn't build a business on top of that. It doesn't like you, you use the exact word. It doesn't create any leverage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So help me start to understand how I, for example, estimate a project and make sure that it's going to be profitable. We've all learned how to do that based on a guesstimate really of how much mm -hmm. time it's going to take. And then I add it up and I try to you know factor in a profit. So how do I do that differently? Start to help me explain that. Okay. So what you just described is usually referred to as time and materials or cost plus. Right. And even whether you give them an estimate or you give them a fixed price based on that, it's almost certainly wrong. Like for any, any, I'm from the software space. So it's virtually impossible to come up with a full plan of what you're going to do in a one or two hour meeting in advance of a six or a, a six or 12 month project is like impossible. So in, in, in the software space, there's this thing called agile programming where you do iterative mm -hmm. two-week sprints where you're constantly sort of uh, refining your approach and getting closer and closer to the target. So it's basically impossible to do that well and profitable. And a lot of people have tried fixed pricing based on hours estimates and have gotten burned because, of course, they didn't know everything. They only knew a portion of it. So they set the price too low. So they're like, fixed pricing is crazy. Uh, I get burned every time I try it. I'm just going to go back to hourly where the, where it's not risky. And that's all true. Like that's true. That will happen. But if you completely flip this idea on its head and you come into a, a sales interview with a potential client and you say, Hey, tell me about the project. And they tell you about the project and they get everything off their chest and you take all these notes and they probably give you, you know, they probably have a bunch of self diagnoses about what they want you to do. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. We need you to do this, do that. And at the end of it, you say, great. You take all those notes. They're probably worthless. Uh, they might not be, but they probably are not that useful. The point of letting them uh, sort of get all of that off their chest is to exhaust everything that they're thinking about so they can actually listen to you. I see. And then they get all of that out. And there could be some valuable information in there, so you are going to write it down. And at that point, it's usually you know 20 minutes in. Here. This is fabulous. Great information. Thank you very much. Can we take a step back and help me understand the context of this project within your business? What are we trying to achieve here? Why did you decide on this particular solution at all? Why is now the right time to do it? Why not put it off later? Why would you hire someone expensive like me to do it instead of doing it in-house or doing it on some, you know, like on Fiverr or 99 designs, depending on what you're you know, industry is. Mm -hmm. And you ask them all these questions where essentially you're trying to talk them out of hiring you. You're trying to talk them out of doing the project at all, or at least doing it in the way that they're planning. And if they convince you that they're right, that this is the way to do it, this is the time to do it, and you are the kind of expensive person that they need to help them, then I would say to myself, all right, I'm going to write a proposal. And oh, by the way, they've convinced themselves that now is the time and this is the way to do it and an expensive person like you is the right choice. 
And on top of it, number three, they're going to have given you all of the verbatim language that will refute any kind of price objection that would come up after you send the proposal. So if you raise every possible pricing objection, you raise every possible timeline objection, you raise every possible project objection up front, which doesn't take very long, then I would say, okay, I see what we're trying to do here. I believe that I can make a difference for this company. And at the end of that, and then I'm like, okay, I'm confident. There's like, it's probably worth me writing a proposal for these people. Then I would say, what does a home run look like? What would just knock this out of the park for you? How would you know that this was a massive success? And they'll sit back and go, oh, well, my God. well, if, and then they'll say something mm-hmm. and it'll be something specific. Or if it's not something specific, you'll just be like, well, what do you mean? You know, everyone will love you. What do you mean? Everyone? What do you mean? Love? You say, oh, well, we would be nominated for a Grammy or we would, you know, our, our employees would just, would, uh, uh, our disgruntled employees would stop coming into the CEO's office, like th- three people at a time to complain about this manager or the conversion rate on our, the mobile version of our website would go from 20% to 50%. Oh, can you imagine if the conversion rate was 50%? Like they'll, they'll have this like dream in front of you mm-hmm. of this amazing future scenario. And at the end of this, at the end of this conversation, I call it the why conversation, you'll have all the information you need to put together a proposal that starts with the current situation, their desired future state, and what they see as your contribution to the project. And so what you've got there is a needle that they want moved. So you, you haven't talked about scope at all. You haven't talked, I mean, other than them brain dumping at the beginning. Mm-hmm. All of this is just you asking them open-ended questions about why, 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 why. You're not talking about, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm awesome because of this. None of that. You're acting like a doctor, just saying, tell me where it hurts. How long has it been like this? And what would it be like if you were back to normal? All right, great. So now you've got this information. You haven't thought about scope yet, really. And you say, ah, for a company like this, in a situation like this, with an outcome that they're looking for, this is totally worth a hundred grand. Like, all day long, easily. So I'm going to come up with a proposal with three options on it. that are 10,000, 22,000, and 50,000. And then you say to yourself, what could I do for these people to move this needle, whether it's conversion rate optimization or employee morale, what could I do for $10,000 that would help them get closer to that goal, contribute to that outcome? And you come up with a scope last by yourself not even talking to them. They're not, they're not in charge of the scope. You're the expert. They can't tell you what to do. It'd be like me telling my doctor how to do my triple bypass. doesn't make sense. So you decide what you're going to do given these three budgets that are based on, a, you know, a guesstimate of what the value might be to the client for like an, you know, annualized like within one year. So you say, okay, for 10 grand, what could I do to help them with this? And you come up with a scope of work that you believe would do so. And same thing at the 22,000, like, oh, 22,000, what would I do? So in, in yeah. that part, in that exercise, you're, you're kind of reverse engineering back into making sure that for that price, it's profitable for you. Exactly. Right. So if, you, so if you're thinking about the $10,000 option, you're going to want to do something that is fist pumpingly value, you know, like worth it to you to do for 10,000. It might be a four-hour innovation workshop. So you, so like the idea of, of whether or not each option is profitable or whether you need to measure the hours is comical because you just pick a scope that you would 
gladly do for $10,000. So even if you're wrong and it takes more work or whatever, it's still super worth doing. This is Henry Lopez, and let's pause for a moment on this episode to introduce you to our new sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. I suspect you're familiar with LinkedIn, but perhaps you've not yet used LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that a position gets filled every eight seconds using LinkedIn Jobs? Hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help grow your business, but it shouldn't become your full-time job. And in our current labor market, it's become even harder to find the right candidates. With LinkedIn Jobs, it doesn't have to be so hard. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help you grow your business. And why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. A couple of features I personally find extremely useful when using LinkedIn Jobs are the job description templates, because it saves me a lot of time, and the skills keyword, because that's how I can really try to find the right match for the position I'm trying to fill. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want for the posting and you can get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com forward slash how, H-O-W. Again, that's linkedin.com forward slash how to get $50 off your first job post. Or you can just text biz, B-I-Z, to 31996 and I will send you the link. Terms and conditions apply. So I haven't heard you mention yet overcoming the objection of, but this is the budget that we have for that. Is that a qualifier then for me that if I hear that, this is not the right client for me or how do I deal with that? Because especially, you know, the example you gave from a software development perspective, very often in my experience, they, they want to plug you in in a very specifically narrow spot. And I get that by asking those broader questions, if they are willing to share that with you, you're expanding that. Mm -hmm. But what about- Or not the, necessarily. You okay. might not be expanding it. You're just getting it clearer. Okay. You're becoming clear on what their desired outcome is. Mm -hmm. And based on, and you can get specific about, well, what's this desired outcome worth to you? But people have a tendency to, it's hard to answer that in the abstract, mm -hmm. but you can kind of do the back of the napkin calculation. And with software development, I would usually approach it like this. It'd be like, because a lot of software is about automation and I would say like, well, why don't you just hire some people to do this manually? Like what's, what's the big deal? Like why hire me to build you with a piece of software that you're going to have to maintain forever and ever. Amen. When you could just hire two people to do more data entry faster and they'll, and they'll say, Oh no, we don't have budget to hire two people. So I immediately know that it's not worth the fully loaded costs of two, you know, data entry people. Okay. So the value is not that high. If they were, but if instead they say, yeah, we wish we could do that. We'd hire 20 people if we could. Now I know that they're thinking 20 people's salaries is reasonable investment to make to solve this problem, but we can't do it for some other reason besides cost. Like we don't have a place to put them or 
we need to be able to scale up on the drop of a hat, drop of a di- or scale up on a at the drop of a hat. What's the expression? At the drop of a hat, and we can't yeah. we can't hire fast enough to do that. Right, right. So we want to 10x the business. We can't 10x our employee base at the same time. We would if we could, but we can't. Yeah, so say, you can't okay. wrap them up fast enough. Right. So that's that's in the software. But are space, you saying that you're time. you're qualifying and looking for those types of answers and those are the opportunities you then want to pursue as opposed to in in asking those questions i don't get much out of them they just want to relegate me to these you know 50 hours in the project they've got a specific budget you're trying to uncover those things as well as you qualify whether this is worth you proposing on uh I think I know where you're going with the question. I mean, basically, basically what happens is you're talking to the people, a couple of things can happen. Sometimes they'll be like, why are you asking us these questions? Why right. don't you just unclog my toilet? Or, like or I asked exactly. you to do? It doesn't matter. Yeah. They might give you a little bit cursory answer, but really what we need, Jonathan, is we just need you to do this coding here on this. We just this need you to do it. what we're telling you to yeah, do. Yeah, This little piece right here. Right. That's not probably a good fit for value pricing or as a client, because the, now that's in the software world where that comes up is when you get like a really savvy CTO at a startup who needs more bodies to throw at his backlog or her backlog, their feature list. And they say, Hey, we need a react native coder to show up, sit in a seat or remotely, whatever. We need 40 hours a week of, of react coding. That's not a good client mm-hmm. because what you do is a commodity to them. Yeah. Yeah. And none of this works. If you're indistinguishable from the next <coughs> React Native developer, you're, you know, you can make an okay living, but you're not building a business. You're just basically a, an employee without benefits. Okay. So, so far, what I'm getting is to, to be able to do this effectively, the value pricing. First of all, you had to develop a little bit of that skill of asking these broader why questions, which a lot of people don't have that experience. So you got to develop that and everybody can learn that. You've got to qualify, right? Because not every opportunity is going to lend itself to this. I would say, you, uh, yeah, I would just modify that slightly. Yep. I, I would say I, you have to be willing to walk away from any yes, deal. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, fair enough there so far. Um, and I'm going to kind of throw go around here in different tangents, but what if then this project requires me to have a team and how have you seen people transition that? Because now my team has to be paid differently and track their work differently, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. Okay. I mean, I've had students, I have several students who have run firms where they've got, you know, eight to 10 to 20 uh, employees, air quotes, a mix of contractors and full-time mm-hmm. employees. And some of them that have been doing this for a long time, they just, they'll say to their contractors, look, I'll give you 10 grand to do this take it or leave it. Not take it, not like an ultimatum, but like, no, yeah, yeah. this is, this is, are you interested say, in this, in this piece or are not, you interested? You know, right. Or I can way, just go yeah. to the next person. Yeah. yeah. Or it's like, um, or they'll be like, here's this thing that we need done. How much would you, how much could I pay you to just do this mm-hmm. with all of the unknowns that we both know are here? Mm-hmm. So cover your own risk. Don't come back later and ask for more money. You take a wild guess at it. Ask me whatever you want up front, but you take a wild guess and, and we'll talk, you know, and I'll probably agree to it. And then, you know, I price it at X and we go to town. Another, another thing people do is just be like, look, I priced this gig at this, uh, what a hundred, hundred grand. They said, yes, I'll give you 50. I'll keep 50 and we'll both work on it until it's done. Yeah. 
that's i mean those are those are not the standard way to do it but you and you can still do it with hourly though because if someone comes along let's say you've got a bunch of contractors that work hourly if if your positioning is good and you're the go-to person for whatever it is that you do or in whatever niche that you operate whatever target market that you address and you're different than the crowd so you stand out you're unique in some way you can command fees that are way higher than if you charge by the hour or anybody you know anybody else that does air quotes what you do and charges by the hour so the idea of of worrying about profit profitability because you have to pay some people hourly is is like a a vestige of being used to razor thin profit margins right most people who build by the hour are used to barely getting by so they get super nervous about which project is profitable and what kind of Mm -hmm. demographics should i be going after that like you're thinking about in the wrong way like when you're doing value pricing well and you you figure out the scope after you set the price you basically have to be inept to not be feeling like you're doing great Okay. All right. That's starting to make sense. I, the other way that I've used tracking time, maybe somebody on my team, if it's especially if they're junior, is it's one way to see, does this realistic, how long it took this person to develop this piece of code or whatever it might be, or deliver this piece of service. It took too long. And so they probably need more training or more coaching. Do you still use time tracking for something like that? Or do you take a different approach to that measurement component of it, even if it's just internally within your group? I mean, hours are easy to measure. So it feels like you're measuring something meaningful because it's easy, you know? I mean, I'm not even gonna get into the fact that, you know, people call them lie sheets, not time sheets. <laughs> but let's just say they're accurate. And it could reveal that someone is taking twice as long to build some React component as you think it should. The thing that you could measure instead in a soft, just to use a software example, would be results. Like what results are you looking for? Like measure something else, like accepted pull requests. So somebody, you know, I, I apologize to anybody who's not a software developer because this is pretty specific, but you know, if, if you've got junior developers and you've got senior developers, you've got a team and the metric isn't how long does it take them to do stuff, but how many pull requests get accepted? How many times does it take them to get a pull request accepted? That's a much different metric. It's a, it's maybe, I mean, it's, it's still pretty easy to, to measure and, and it's definitely truer. So, you know, I think looking at something that is results focused and not, mm-hmm. not input focused, like, Hey, I put in the hours, you owe me the time. It's like, yeah, but you wasted all that. The time was poorly spent. Right. Like the thing with the hours Measuring out as an, from an employer standpoint, measuring hours, it's, I think it's conflated with productivity when in fact it has absolutely nothing to, to do with productivity. In fact, it's the opposite. If you are paying people by the hour and they want to raise, they work slower. Good point. I have a client who does consulting work, not software development, but consulting work, and they've got different levels of consultants and they each have then their related billing rate. And it's part of course of how they get compensated. What, how do I shift that then away from an hourly rate that you're at for that level and instead 
almost like what you're talking about here is this more project based and depending on your experience and your output level. We understand the question I'm struggling with. Yeah. So what you're, what you're struggling with is how do I measure my employees? Yeah. My team, the different levels that they're at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And therefore the, the money that they're going to make off a particular project that they're part of. I mean, you pick a metric that makes like picking hours as a metric. Okay. You've picked a metric. Is it a good one for creative work? I'm confident saying that absolutely not. It is absolutely not a good metric. So pick a metric that makes sense mm-hmm. that actually aligns with your, I don't know, income or customer satisfaction or client yeah. satisfaction. Yeah. So, I mean, pick a different metric, like fine measure stuff. That's cool. I mean, I'm not, I, I have managed people. It's not my strong suit, but I, I recognize that incentives absolutely matter. So pick an incentive that, is meaningful to your business and clearly communicate that to your employees in a way that they know how to execute against it. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately what comes to mind for this client is within those levels of consultants, what's related to that is that the type of consulting service that you can deliver. And I don't want to, I don't want to get into details because obviously it's confidential, but in other words, I could measure instead, can you deliver this particular result for the customer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it all boils down to customer satisfaction. Sure. At the end of the sure. Day. Absolutely. So if somebody's getting back, you could, you could boil it down to like, oh, your annual bonuses are based on uh, your testimonials that you get from your clients. If you get good testimonials, you get a bigger bonus period. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a pretty coarse, high level uh, metric. It's not project, you know, it, I mean, I guess it's technically, eh, it could be project based, but it would be something to measure that is absolutely useful. It's intangible. It's subjective but it matters. You know, like if your clients, if you've got two consultants and one of them has a bunch of, and one of them's, in your opinion, amazing, like a genius, a master technician at whatever it is that you do, but their clients all hate, like the, the, the clients are all totally dissatisfied with the outcome versus someone who you think is, you know, like my junior developer story who had an amazing bedside manner and kept all his clients perfectly happy even though in my opinion, it took them way too long to build stuff. You know, it's like if you could just measure everybody on customer satisfaction because that ultimately is the thing that's going to build your business. If you're, if you're producing happy customers who talk about how amazing you are, things are going to go good for you. I can, I can predict with confidence. Yeah. Okay. You, you've, when we first started talking about this, you, you shared some of the reasons why this is good for my client, but, but help me continue to wrap my arms around why, this value-based approach to pricing as opposed to an hourly rate or fee, why it's good for the client. Why is, the, why is value-based pricing good for the client? Right. Because it gives them a fixed price that is uh, equitable to the person who's providing the service. So if, you, if, you're, if you're a client and you underpay for a service, you're going to get underserved. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the, the number between, I, 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 whenever in this conversation, there's three numbers that, I, that are critically important. The value, which is a subjective number of what something is worth to the client. The cost, which is a subjective number that is in your mind as the seller, like how much, like what's the least amount of money that I would take to do this? Mm-hmm. That's basically your cost. And there's a price. 
And the price is somewhere in between the cost and the value. Otherwise, the deal won't happen. If the deal, you know, if the price is higher than the value, the buyers, the, the potential buyer is not going to accept the price. If the price is lower than the cost to the seller, the seller is not going to accept the price. So the price has to be somewhere in the middle. That's a huge, ideally, that's a huge range. Ideally, there's a giant gap between the cost to the seller and the value to the buyer. Mm-hmm. You can set your price anywhere in there and, and, and everything will be fine. If there's not, a, here's the problem. A lot of people do work in ways that they don't articulate the value. The client never understands the value. They never think about the value. They just think about how many hours it's going to take. Mm -hmm. And the value and the cost are almost identical. So there's no wiggle room in between. And this is when you start worrying about losing money and profitability of individual projects. So if you reorient your thinking around defining the value first and then setting a price that's 10% 10% of the value, 22% of the value, and 50% of the value, and then coming up with scope, aka cost, that is going to fit into each one of those budgets, like happily for you, and you just don't have the problem. Like it just doesn't happen. Okay. So I'm uncovering that value in part in the questions that I ask in those initial meetings. And then I'm discovering really what that, what that price is by proposing these three uh, level of proposals mm-hmm. that I would be comfortable with any of the three. They work right. for me. I can make money on it. I want to do with them, but yep. that'll uncover the, the, then the client will tell me this is where the price is. Um, say that last part again. Because they'll, they'll, they'll tell me then because they're going to pick from those three and that's the price. That's how we're uncovering yes. the price. Number yeah? two. We want number two. We mm-hmm. want number two. I see. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. That's starting to make sense. All right. I know we've got limited time here. Uh, mm-hmm. How do I start to transition if the way I've been doing it, as most of us have, has been hourly? How do I start to transition? Yeah. So, so this is definitely takes practice. So whatever you do, don't start with a huge year-long project. So ideally what you would do is start with a really, really like a small, like for what for you feels like a small project. So, you know, someone comes along, you, you get a good sense of them. You feel like your communication is good. You connect with them. Maybe it's a past client with a new, um, new project, something on the small side, maybe three months where you could be way, way off. It could end up being six or nine months and you'd be like, eh, you wouldn't feel like you were making great money, but mm-hmm. you'd at least get the experience of practicing the, the sales interview, the, the Y conversation, and then running a project that's based on achieving an outcome instead of delivering a bunch of individual features or activities. So it's not about the deliverables. It's not about the activities. It's about the outcome. Create the customer satisfaction. Find out first what's going to satisfy them. Decide if you can satisfy them or if you believe you can. Then write a proposal. And then if they accept it, satisfy them. It's a very different model. It seems, doesn't it sound kind of brain dead when you say it? Like, duh, you should be yeah. satisfying your clients. Absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. But nobody thinks, it's very rare to think like that. But right. It's, you, it's you, this disconnect between the way that we've always measured it, which is based on this arbitrary thing called hours. And right. it, you know, there's, it doesn't reconcile. You know? So here's a, so here's a really, really training wheels way to do it. Let's say you don't change anything. You don't change anything about the way you have a sales interview. You don't, you change nothing. You talk about scope the whole time. You let them tell you what to do. You give them an hourly rate, everything that I say not to do. 
when you write the proposal, the estimate, you write an estimate, that's option one. The estimate is, we think it's going to be $10,000, you know, like whatever, hundred hours at our hundred dollar an hour rate, a hundred, whatever, yeah, you get the idea. So it's, yep. it's an estimate or we'll give you a fixed price guaranteed, no upcharges for 18,000. Mm -hmm. You pick, do you want the guaranteed $18,000 option or do you want to pay us hundred dollars an hour and it'll probably take $10,000 worth of hours, but it might be twice as much. Right. It might be more. Yeah. We're not going to guarantee that. Right. And I think your listeners will find that a lot of clients will pick that $18,000 option because businesses despise risk. They hate it. They would rather pay a premium to know how much it's going to cost up front than to have this meter running like this leak in their checking account, which they have no control over. Yeah. Makes so sense. I, yeah. And so if you get, even if you only close 25% of your deals on the fixed price option, even if you only do that, you're going to start to feel the difference in the business model. Because right now, if you're billing by the hour, you know, you work for three hours and you look at the clock after you're done, you like log your time. You're like, I just made like 300 bucks. When you have a fixed price and you get to the end of three hours, you're like, I just lost 300 bucks. Mm. So I better figure out how to do this better and faster. And that is a mindset that does not exist with people who bill by the hour. Right. Like they don't think about how to get faster. So it's not, it's not necessarily that they're dragging their feet on their normal projects, but they never sit down and invent a bicycle because there's just no financial incentive for them to invent a bicycle. They're just going to keep walking. Great point. Hence, another benefit to the client of this approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, This is way better for the client. Think, Listener, think of anything you buy. Think of everything you bought for the last month. Probably all you knew, uh, every single thing you bought, you probably knew the price in advance. Imagine if you walked into a sandwich shop and it was like, yeah, like a ham sandwich. How much is that going to be? And they're like, nah, it'd probably be about 10 bucks, but we'll let you know after <laughs> you eat it. <laughs> You wouldn't like that. It feels terrible. You'd be like, never mind. I'm going to go somewhere else where they'll tell me how much the sandwich is first. Yeah, great analogy. So clients, never mind. You don't have to tell the clients that you use value pricing or whatever. Right. You just give them a fixed price and be like, look, this, you will not pay a dime more than this for the outcome that we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, and call it value simple. pricing, call it results-oriented pricing, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just a price. It's, it's a project price. All right, uh, Jonathan, tell me, tell me more about how you help people do this. I mean, the main thing is my daily mailing list. So I talk about this stuff every day on uh, a mailing list. I've got you know, thousands and thousands of people who read my emails every day. I know that's hard to believe. You would think that they would unsubscribe for spam, but nope. Uh, for three and a half years, I've been emailing the list every single day about topics related to pricing your work ditching hourly billing, uh, which include things like positioning and writing proposals and uh, building authority and all of the things that go into differentiating yourselves, uh, yourself from the masses so that you can have a bigger impact and therefore set higher prices. So, you know, so I, you know, you listed already ditching out podcasts and so on and so forth. But if people want to go to uh, valuepricingbootcamp.com, they can learn more about specifically about value pricing. And um, it, all the emails come from my personal email. So you can reply to anything with questions. And I, you know, 
I do my best to reply to everyone. It gets it's getting a little busy these days, but I do try to get back to everybody on every single question they ask. Wonderful. And we'll have links to all of that on the show notes page for this episode at thehowabusiness.com. Appreciate that. All right, let's talk about books. Uh, your book uh, on this topic is called Hourly Billing is Nuts. Mm-hmm. Is there another book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Yeah, the one that really changed my life was call, is called uh, How to Measure Anything by Douglas Hubbard. And it seems impossible to measure everything. Things like, there's an example in the book about how to measure the beauty of a lake. <laughs> and he, it, my reaction to that was like, mm, that's impossible. But he changed my mind about it. And there's a very specific reason why, like define what a measurement is. The measurement, a measurement is a very specific thing meant to uh, support a decision that needs to be made. So it doesn't have to be exact. It just needs to be useful to support the decision. And so I could go, I love this book. So if you check out how to measure anything that will help you or help the listener understand or believe, I guess, understand how to, but also believe that you can measure things. If, if a client can detect a difference from their current state to their desired future state, even if it's something intangible like morale or brand or reputation, if they can detect a difference, it means that they're measuring something. You just need to figure out what it is. How do they know that their brand is bad? How would they know if it was good? And then you can decide if, you know, how much that difference is worth and how confident you are, you can make that change. But this book, How to Measure Anything by Douglas Hubbard, that was the, that was the doorway into that world for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously, um, how to look at measuring things other than hourly rate and what's your, what's your day rate, right? So that, that opened, helped open your mind, helps open your mind to different ways of measuring things. Mm -hmm. Right. Great recommendation. Thanks for that. All right, we'll wrap it up, Jonathan. What's one thing you want us to take away uh, from this conversation about value pricing? You know, you don't have to use value pricing, but what you do have to do is ditch hourly. You got to stop trading time for money if you want to grow your business. Because if you're just trading time for money, you might as well go work for somebody. Honestly, it's a better deal to just go work for somebody. So it's not necessarily easy. Uh, It's not necessarily an easy transition. It's a strategic level decision. But ditching hourly is the thing you need to do if you want to really get that sort of autonomy over your schedule, your time, get your time back for yourself and be able to decide what you're going to do every day. Yeah. Key takeaway, um, in addition for me, was you know your practical approach to how you provide them with the proposals, the three proposals. I think that's a great uh, actionable takeaway that, that was very valuable for me. Cool. Where do you want us to go online to learn more? Tell us again. Yep, valuepricingbootcamp.com. That's the best place. Wonderful. Jonathan, this has been a great conversation, enlightening for me. Um, I have to say, you know, I feel a lot better about understanding what this is and and, um, I'm going to keep studying it because obviously it applies to me and some of the things I do in my consulting work. So thanks for coming on the show and taking the time and sharing with us. My pleasure. Great questions. It's fun. Thank you. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Jonathan Stark. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, other platforms, as well as at our website, thehowofbusiness.com, or just text the word biz, B-I-Z, 
three one to biz to three one nine nine six, and I'll reply with the link to the show notes page. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.